Hi, Lucy. Oh, hi, Lauren. Lucy, are you in school right now? I'm in fourth grade. What grade are you in? I am out of school, and now I'm a grown-up with a job. Right now, I'm working on a podcast, which is what I'm talking to you for. Do you know what a podcast is? Oh, well, I don't know. I'll look it up in the encyclopedia. <laughs> in fact, Lucy, I have to go tape my podcast right now. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Bye. Bye. That was Lucy, a virtual being created by a company called Fable. Lucy was created as a kind of intelligent being who can interact with people in a natural way. But while Lucy is new, she's not a total novelty. My colleague Emma Gray Ellis has been reporting on this entirely new world of virtual beings and how they're taking over our timelines, sometimes without us even noticing. On today's show, we talk about this world of virtual beings. What do they tell us about interpersonal relationships and the economics of celebrity, and most importantly, our own humanity? Welcome to Get Wired. I'm your host, Lauren Good. Hi, Emma. Hey, how are you? I am good. So Lucy is adorable. She really is. I found myself talking to her as though she was a real 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. The, there's something very natural about the way that she interacts that I think reads as really convincingly childlike. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for introducing me to Lucy and to the folks over at Fable. So, Emma, Lucy is just one of many virtual beings that you've been following and interacting with and reporting on for a while. And before we dig in, can we just back up a little bit? What are virtual beings exactly? It's a good question because I think that we're still figuring out exactly what they are. In the most basic sense, a virtual being is a piece of technology that seems to have some kind of personality, a sort of pseudo-consciousness that we humans get to interact with. I think that in a lot of ways, Siri and Alexa are the predecessors to these virtual beings that we're seeing now. When you're talking to them, usually it's, hey Siri, hey Alexa, what's the weather? Can you play this song? With Lucy, the idea is that you become curious about her inner world in a way that you're never really prompted to do with a voice assistant. There's no point to Lucy. She's not going to tell you what the weather is. She's not going to help you get to the dentist office. The point of her is that she's a mind in some way. And I guess there aren't just technological progressions that have happened that have made this possible, but there are cultural progressions that have happened too. Right. I think that our relationship with video games is certainly a stepping stone here, right? If you're playing inside of a video game, you're interacting with characters as if they were real and you have objectives in there that you care about. But culture-wise, there's actually a strong culture of interacting with virtual beings already in Japan. So one of the most famous examples of a virtual being is a Japanese virtual pop star named Hatsune Miku, a text-to-voice processing software that eventually they realized they could make sing pretty well. So they thought, why not attach 
a anime avatar to it. And from there, she sort of blew up in popularity and started performing as a hologram to crowded theaters and giving actual live concerts. It's part of a larger culture around virtual beings in Japan. So in the States, we obviously take a lot of cues from Japan when it comes to tech. Do we have our own version of this kind of virtual being culture here in the U.S.? We absolutely do. So I got to attend a summit not too long ago, which, like everything else, was on Zoom, which was fitting because all of the presenters at this conference were actually fake people in one way or another. Uh, And so at the very beginning, they had a virtual venture capitalist come on who was supposed to be an AI version of a real venture capitalist. Uh, (laughs) Were they wearing a uh, Patagonia vest and all bird sneakers? (laughs) (laughs) I could only see her from the waist up, but she did in a sort of very VC sort of way say that the way that she would make use of her virtualness was to be a sort of omnipresent advisor to any potential entrepreneur that that might want to talk to her. I'm constantly looking to discover new entrepreneurs and help turn their ideas into impactful, revolutionary new companies. How has having your own AI helped you with that? My most productive conversations don't take place over Facebook or Instagram. Hmm. They're one-on-one discussions with people I share common objectives with. Being able to do that at scale has been transformative. Incredible. Then, after she had spoken for a while, uh, they pivoted away from the sort of Silicon Valley stuff and they brought in a digital version of Deepak Chopra. Bringing peace to the world is a very noble cause. Deepak, what a lovely surprise. Uh, so, yep, uh, Digital Deepak, uh, his called. You can actually download him on the Google Play Store. Um, and he led us in uh, a meditation, the entire conference. Close your eyes. Bring your awareness to your heart and mentally ask yourself only four questions. Who am I? What do I want? What am I grateful for? And there was also maybe some more practical versions like a virtual quote-unquote doctor who can take a patient's medical history. Oh, that seems especially useful in the time of coronavirus, but also still kind of bizarre. What stood out to you the most from the conference? Well, the headliner of the whole event was certainly Lil Michaela, who is, I would say, the closest approximation to the Hatsune Miku of America. In 2016, on Instagram, all of a sudden, there was this account, a teenage Brazilian-American model pop star saying that she was a robot. Um, So I'm not the only robot pop star. I was programmed to believe that I was a 19-year-old, half-Brazilian, half-Spanish girl named Michaela. So Kane asked Brad. I was very curious, and so I followed and checked out what she did over time, and that's who this little Michaela character is. And why was Lil Michaela created and by who? Lil Michaela was created by a startup called Brood that's based down in LA, basically just as an experiment, as far as I can tell. She's, you know, a virtual influencer. And so I think that she has the same goals as any other influencer. Her goal is to be on the platform, gain followers, and hopefully make some money. And how many followers does she have? 
Well, at the time of taping, she has 2.5 million followers. Holy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She's very popular. Incredibly popular. And and what does she look like? If you look at her account, she really does just look like a regular influencer. I'm not sure that you would know on first look. Yeah, I don't actually follow her, but I'm going to now. And let me see. Okay. Um, Yeah, I mean, at first glance, I would definitely think this was a, a real human being. I see someone who looks, you know, very young, very hip, cool hair, and a seemingly infinite closet. Yep. I mean, like a lot of great clothes. But also if I'm, when I zoom in, there's something about her that does look not real, a little too perfect. It's her face, right? It's right. her face. The, there's been some speculation that in some cases, what you're looking at is a human model from neck down and then a replaced face, but no one really, like, it's not clear. But I think that in the Instagram environment where we're used to looking at heavily facetuned photos, on a casual scroll, she totally passes the test. Right. I'm also noticing that at the top of Lil Michaela's profile, she has a hashtag for Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a socially conscious one. <laughs> right. Very socially mm-hmm. conscious influencer, digital influencer. And on the one hand, it seems like a remarkable way to get the message out to her 2.5 million followers. On the other hand, I wonder if it rings a little bit hollow coming from an avatar. I think it does ring more hollow. Michaela has actually had a fair amount of backlash for her participation in social causes. So you're not the only one to look at and, you know, an avatar of what ostensibly seems to be a woman of color backing a bunch of progressive causes and doing a bunch of things, but in actuality being a sort of puppet of a startup in LA with a little bit of discomfort. So one of Michaela's early successes was an advertisement with Calvin Klein in which she collaborated with supermodel Bella Hadid. Life is about opening doors. And as the ad opens, all you see is Bella standing in her Calvins, seeming to be waiting for a train. And then all of a sudden you get a silhouette of Michaela. They stand face to face. They lean in and they kiss. Everyone's wearing Calvins, and that's the entire ad. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. tell me about the backlash to this ad. So Bella Hadid is not queer, and Michaela's not a real person. And so when people saw the two of them kissing inside of an advertisement with the intent to make money for Calvin Klein, people weren't into the fact that a kiss between two women was being used to titillate and sell sweatpants when in our human society, it's not always safe for lesbian partners to be affectionate with each other. And uh, people also wondered just why when we're handing out opportunities to have these jobs, to work alongside a supermodel of Hadid's caliber and to represent a mainstream brand, we're giving these opportunities to someone virtual rather than a real human woman. Yeah, that makes sense. The Economics angle is interesting, though. Like, are virtual models actually just more efficient than real ones? Especially in a pandemic, I think that that's true. It's something that I'm seeing talked about more and more as time has gone on and we've continued to be in quarantine. 
human influencers right now are facing travel bans, safety concerns about going to places. It's certainly hard to have a photo shoot at a social distance. Think about applying makeup to someone's face from six feet away. You can't do it. But Michaela doesn't have any of those constrictions. She wears the clothes of not just Calvin Klein, but also Prada. She's done Givenchy uh, and other really mainstream fashion brands simply because it's easy. And even outside of a pandemic, you don't have to feed her. She doesn't need breaks. There are all these things that are logistically so much simpler for people. And so if you don't require her to talk at all, even to a certain extent, if you just need her to have simple conversation, it's much easier to use a virtual rendering of someone than a real person. And then who ultimately gets paid for that? It goes back to the company that created her. Wow, that brings up all kinds of interesting issues, too, around IP. How much of the normalization of Lil Michaela has to do with the fact that she lives on Instagram? And Instagram is something that we all use and scroll all the time. Yeah, I think that on Instagram in particular, we're already accustomed to a certain kind of fakeness, right? What I've had some people say to me is that if you can believe in Kim Kardashian, you can believe in Lil Michaela. They're no more or less real. You're never going to meet Kim Kardashian. She lives in this totally mediated environment that is extremely edited, hyper-filtered for your consumption. And so Michaela, in that she's basically living a life just for Instagram, isn't really so different than an influencer who leads a double life, one for Instagram and one you know, off camera anyway. And I think that we've seen that Michaela fits pretty seamlessly into that whole environment. Even her scandals are such traditional Instagram influencer scandals. <laughs> She's just part of the club. Right, right. Like she gets into a fight about politics and then she makes a controversial ad and then, oh, yeah, I'm dropping an album. I mean, it's mm -hmm. pretty much like the arc of an influencer. Exactly. I've even heard some people make the argument that Michaela and influencers like her are sort of the antidote to the inherent strain of being a celebrity, the sort of Hannah Montana problem of needing to live a double life, because she doesn't, right? She, she has no discomfort in being the Michaela on Instagram versus the Michaela at home, because there only is the Michaela on Instagram. And so there's no scandals that can happen about her personal life being different than how she presents it on Instagram, because what you see is what you get. Is that the world we live in eventually, where celebrities or really any public-facing figure uses this kind of digital avatar to make appearances on their behalf? Like the digital conference you went to, for example. I'm not sure if celebrities are thinking that way, but when I was at the virtual beings conference, that's certainly how venture capitalists were thinking. <laughs> and once venture capitalists are on it, you know they're going to find a way to commercialize it. They've already invested over a quarter billion dollars into startups in this space. And so I certainly they see some kind of future. Okay, Emma, people are making customizable, never-aging virtual beings, and they're having, you know, interpersonal relationships with them, which makes me think about porn. 
Absolutely. Even just the examples that we've been talking about are already like, Lil Michaela is in no way a porn star, but I think it's telling that her biggest advertisement to date included a kiss. I think that throughout the history of human interaction with fake people in some way, sex is almost always, always involved. And so this is something we've seen with virtual beings as well. Hatsune Miku, the Japanese pop star that we mentioned, has attracted many, many amorous fans. One who famously married her uh, a few years back, actually. Whoa. What does it mean to marry a virtual being exactly? It's not a legally binding ceremony. Basically, a company called Gatebox, which is the company behind the Hatsune Miku hologram desktop device, which looks like she's inside a little container like a lava lamp, gives you a certificate that says that you've been wed beyond dimensions, which has led to a lot of discussion about this sort of newly identified, only somewhat discussed sexuality that people call digisexuality. People who, who identify as digisexual say that they're attracted to technology as opposed to humanity. Oh, that's interesting. And does that become an either or thing? Or are those people attracted to both virtual beings and also still humans? I mean, I assume that digisexuality, like all sexuality, is a spectrum. Right. But this does seem to be a really strong interest for some people. What are some of the other ways in which these virtual beings or AIs are appearing in our sex lives? Earlier this year, a company debuted a artificial porn star named Project Melody on a website called Chatterbait, which is a camming site. Her backstory that she gives is that she was a regular email processing AI, and then she was infected by a crazy sex virus. Oh. And then... <laughs> And now she just can't get enough of human sexuality. Uh, she has blue hair and self-described big old anime titties uh, <laughs> and is sort of positions herself as a live version of hentai. So Wired has covered the lives of sex workers before and more recently about how their livelihood is being affected by the pandemic. And I'm wondering how sex workers feel about these virtual replacements of what they're doing. Almost as soon as Project Melody debuted, she became one of the most popular streamers on the site. And so human cam models came forward to say this was an example of their work being undervalued and that they were concerned about what it meant um, for their futures, uh, the future of their livelihoods. I think that their concerns are really justified because something like Melody could, in the future as technology improves, be multiplied infinitely, right? And so you could theoretically have a customized version of some AI porn star talking with a, a million people at once with no strain, no breaks, no food, no, no, no need for personal money, right? And do that forever, 24 hours a day, agelessly. Is there any argument to be made, Emma, that AI sex bots could potentially be good for the industry? Like if there are sex workers who are being exploited or abused or in, on some level feel forced to work in the industry, now they don't necessarily have to because there's AI that does it for them. Like, is this potentially a good thing? Potentially. When we imagine 
our techno-utopian future, then it does seem free. But in reality, when you consider replacing the livelihoods of a section of the public without giving them some kind of social safety net that that job has been for them, then you're not necessarily improving society. And so it certainly has the potential to help, but replacing jobs that we feel morally ambiguous about with morally ambiguous AI agents is not going to be a simple fix. How close are we to that being totally normalized? A year ago, I would have said that we were pretty far away from that and that this was all very hypothetical. But now that we're here in quarantine and we've all been thrust into these virtual spaces, I think that the level of credulity that people are willing to like apply to these relationships. You saw it yourself when you talked to Lucy, right? It's, it's almost hard to not to talk to her like a, a real kid because she comes across that way sort of instantly. And so I think that we've come to this moment where we're right on the cusp of these figures being able to blend in more or less seamlessly with our existing digital worlds. And so I'm not sure. I think we're camping right on the edge of that Uncanny Valley right now. You mentioned quarantine, and a lot of us are living our lives entirely through screens right now. So is this a kind of tipping point for virtual beings? I think so. Quarantine has been such a period of digital experimentation. Not that long ago, uh, the rapper Travis Scott had a concert entirely within Fortnite where he performed as a hundred foot tall avatar of himself. Um, People are already spending so much time on screens, as you say, that it creates a kind of captive audience for an industry that might have otherwise had to lure in its its customer base into these spaces. Um, not to mention the fact that everyone's lives are so dependent on the virtual world all of a sudden um, means that a lot of the technology that's being worked on to support our working lives will also support virtual beings being able to interact with us more seamlessly. I want to go back to that virtual beings conference that you went to. I'm wondering how you felt participating in it. Like when you did the digital Deepak Chopra meditation, did you close your eyes and like forget it wasn't a real Deepak or were you aware of it on some level? How did it feel to participate in it? One of the things that was most striking to me about watching artificial intelligences stumble through conversations on Zoom at a conference was how very unweird it all felt. Because a lot of the hallmarks that we think of when we're talking to something that's not real, the, the cues that you would have, all of those happen on Zoom conversations anyway. <laughs> so I kind of just felt like I was at an extra awkward meeting. And I found myself, I found it pretty easy to believe in some of these people. And so when Digital Deepak, who looked like a pixelated, haunted marionette of Jeff Goldblum on that Zoom connection, he did not look good. The um, when he told us to like close our eyes and you know asked us what our purpose was and stuff like that, I like he just sent me into a, a regular anxiety spiral as if he was a real person, <laughs> asking me to think about big meaning of life questions. <laughs> Got it. So virtual beings can still inspire anxiety. Really, Emma, is there an upside to virtual beings that maybe gets lost? Well, I think that, like, they're sort of a neutral force. 
there are real benefits for people who maybe struggle to have human interactions in real life for whatever reason. Right. I think that like COVID has highlighted that there's a lot of people who are truly socially isolated, especially elderly people. And so these are sort of a virtual companion robot in that way. But I also think that it's just interesting to like be at a moment where we're really thinking about how do we construct something that we've been dreaming about for the past thousand years. And I think that like they could be something that's super beautiful or super dark. And they'll in reality, they'll be both because humans are making them. Well, Emma. I'm really grateful that you joined me on the Get Wired podcast this week to paint a picture for us of our extremely virtual future. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Good. This episode is reported by Emma Gray Ellis. You can find Emma on Twitter at Emma Gray Ellis. That's gray with an E. This episode was produced by Ryan Kailoff, with additional production help from our assistant producer, Alex Jerome, and Ben Montoya. Ben also scored the episode. Megan Greenwell, the editor of Wired.com, is our story editor. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. He also helped edit this episode. Scott Rosenfeld is our site director. Wired's editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. Mixing and sound design was done by Hannes Brown. Additional sound design by Ben Montoya. Theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. You can find us on wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. And there's more info in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week.